really, I am glad to be in this place. So I just, uh, just wanted to get, get that clear. <laughs> uh, today, we are coming to the penultimate phrase of our journey through the Apostles' Creed. As you are hopefully aware, uh, we've been looking closely at this ancient document, which was shaped early in the history of the church as a way of identifying the central core which constitutes true Christian belief. As we have seen, it's a strongly Trinitarian document, referencing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's at the same time a Christocentric document, because the main emphasis of the document is Jesus Himself, and that's entirely appropriate. In the latter part of the Creed, we've already had a good look at the church, at the forgiveness of sins. That was uh, Paul preaching last week, as you'll recall. Uh, he did a good job. And today, uh, we're looking at this uh, uh, statement here, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and uh, the resurrection of the body particularly. I notice that as I get older, I am becoming more and more aware of the fact of death. Now, this is not necessarily the case. Some people, through the circumstances of their lives, are exposed to the reality of death very early on. A parent dies, uh, a childhood friend dies, and suddenly they have death uh, stamped on their awareness very young. But for many people, death is one of those things that sits out there happening to other people, and it doesn't kind of come with full force to us until, well, I've t just turned 60, and uh, I'm aware of death now in ways that I don't think I have been. Just this week, one of the friends that I grew up with, Lynn, she was part of our youth group. She married my best friend, Trev. She was um, found to have brain cancer uh, in the middle of last year, and she just passed away this week. So when I think about death, I think about Lynn, and I think about, well, many others. We as a community, because we are a community, are exposed to death regularly. It wasn't long ago that we were celebrating Ruth Cummings' life with us, and we all miss her. So death kind of impinges on our reality uh, in different ways, but I'm certainly noticing it, and probably you are too. And I think the awareness of death, the, the awareness that it's out there, can have two effects on us. One, uh, it can actually make us pretty depressed, right? We realize that Life is short, and death is inevitable, and so let's just get miserable, right? That, 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 is, that is one possible response uh, to the reality of death. But there is a different way, and the way that I want to encourage us this morning is to think about the one thing that makes sense of death, and that is this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Because here, and here alone I want to suggest, lies the means to handle 
the reality of death. So hopefully this is appropriate. I don't want to get morbid this morning. I do want to be upbeat and hopeful because the resurrection of the dead is profoundly good news. And we as the Christian community in a season of COVID-19 and lots of global fear need to be reminded of this above all else. And why not today? So that's what we're going to look at today. Hopefully that's going to be good. Now, it's not actually the first time we've run into the resurrection uh, as part of the Apostles' Creed because we've already looked at the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the fact that He died, was buried, and was raised on the third day, right? We've seen that, so we know, we know about the resurrection of Jesus Himself, but this is the wider doctrine, the resurrection of others, the resurrection of us. And our scriptural passage today involves one of the brightest minds of the first century, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth about this very issue. And we're plunging into this at verse 12. It's a great chapter if you ever want to read a chapter that has to do with life, resurrection, and its implications. Now, as we get into this, it's important to notice that there was obviously confusion existing in the church in Corinth. You only have to read 1 Corinthians 15 in its entirety to realize that they weren't confused simply uh, about resurrection issues. They were confused about a lot of things. And that whole letter that Paul wrote is to try to sort them out and help them through a bunch of their misunderstandings and the pieces that they were just completely mixed up about. It's a very interesting letter. But apparently, what we have going on in the church in Corinth was a belief that there was no such thing as resurrection of the dead at all. Now, they were Greeks, and in Greek philosophy, there was this dualism that was a key part of uh, their understanding of the world, uh, and it tended to discount things material, like bodies, and to exalt the unseen, the spiritual. Now, when you mix that dualistic understanding of the world with Christianity, you got two equal and opposite reactions. One of the, one of the things that was happening in the, uh, the church in Corinth was that they were finding it easy to argue, on the one hand, that the body didn't matter. Your body is just something you're going to leave behind. So do with it what you will. And the argument then took it in the direction of sensuality, do what you like with your body. And that's why I think uh, we find that there's a, a, a situation that had developed where somebody's involved with a prostitute and arguing, no, it's not a problem. My body's going to get you know, left behind, so it doesn't matter what I do with it. So sensuality uh, could be emphasized when body was minimized, right? That was one direction it could go. The other direction you could go with this kind of exalting the spiritual side of things was to think that anything spiritual was really it. And of course, in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 
we have this big discussion that's on, uh, uh, that, that Paul engages about the gifts, the spiritual gifts. And those in Corinth who had been given the gift of tongues felt that they had really arrived. They were speaking the language of the angels. They were, they were on their way. They, they had, they had, they, they had got, got it. And, and they were moving into, into this realm of, of wonder and ecstasy uh, and ordinary mortals uh, had missed it. And so by exalting that, they, they, they were missing something again uh, of reality. And so Paul's attempt here in this letter is to bring them down to earth uh, and to argue that the resurrection of the dead is something that is really important because our bodies are resurrected too. So our bodies do matter. They've got an eternal future uh, ahead of them. And our spirits matter in as much as they are part of embodied people. People are people who are enfleshed, wrapped up in flesh. And our body gets resurrected. So, the central point of his argument here is that if Jesus has not been raised, then all Christian preaching is useless, and so is their faith. That's, that's what he's going to expand on in these next few verses as he talks to them uh, about this, this um, belief. Furthermore, he says, the denial of the resurrection of the dead actually transforms the Christian faith from a proclamation of truth to a declaration of falsehood. So, if Jesus stayed dead, any talk of resurrection is actually a lie and it just leaves everyone confused. If Jesus is not resurrected, then most significantly, the very basis of Christian hope and faith is completely undercut. A dead Jesus leaves us all with our sins unforgiven, with no hope at all for those who died in Christ. And as Paul puts it so clearly, if Christian hope is only based on the life we live here and now, then we are to be pitied more than anyone else. Why, why the pity? Well, Christian teaching is that it matters what we do here and now. It matters that we turn to God and repent and start living in the way that Jesus calls us to live. And if we're doing that only to reach death and death to be the end of everything, then why are we, why are we bothering to think that life matters? Why not, as Isaiah references, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? What's the point? If all that sounds a little bit negative, and of course it is, he's pushing his argument negatively here, if they are the outcomes of failing to believe in the resurrection of the dead, Paul has no intention in this passage of leaving us there. In verse 20, he confidently asserts that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, this use of the term first fruits takes us back to the Old Testament where people were expected to offer up the first part of the harvest as an offering to God in confident expectation that the best of the harvest was still to come. It was the first piece that guaranteed the remainder. Here, Paul is using the term as a metaphor for the confidence that we can have that Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that resurrection is coming for everyone else who dies in Christ. Paul thinks back to the big story of Scripture. Back at the beginning, the consequences of the disobedience of Adam and Eve were that death entered the world as the lasting effect of the first couple's disobedience. And the sad thing about that was that it has had the same effect on all of us. None of us get away without the prospect of death. But Paul sees the old pattern of spreading death replaced by a new pattern of spreading life. What we all got from one man, Adam, was death. What we get from Jesus, the new man, the new Adam, if you like, is life. But there's an order and a timeline in this. Jesus Christ was the first to be raised from the dead and raised to life. But when He comes back, everyone else who has died in Christ will share His resurrection. The return of Christ will then lead directly to the great conclusion and wrap-up of everything. When Jesus, the victorious King, having triumphed over all the dominions, authorities, and powers that oppose Him, will return everything to God the Father. His reign will certainly see the subjection of all His enemies, and the last enemy, we are told, to be destroyed is death itself. You know, this is really hopeful stuff, right? And we're all sitting here this morning, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But this is actually great news, right? We, we ought to be electrified by this. We ought to be jumping up and down and saying, fantastic, this is hope. Some of you have been to Christless burials. Oh, a Christless burial is a sad, sad reality. Mourning, loss, hopelessness. What a difference when you go to a Christ-filled burial. The action is the same. The reality is so different because the hope of Christ fills that place and it becomes a place of joy. Yes, there's loss. Yes, there's grief. But it's hopeful because of this, because there is resurrection and there is confidence that God knows what He's doing and is going to bring it to a conclusion and a completion that is going to see transformation of everything, death undone. This is the Christian hope. 
a few thoughts on this. Some of you here this morning may be here as observers. You've not yet committed yourselves to following Jesus, but you are here trying to figure life out and make sense of the gift of life that you have received. Now, I'm not here today to try to prove the resurrection to you. I'm not sure at one level that the resurrection can be proved in an analytical sense. Although, there are certainly some very interesting arguments and coherent arguments that can be put together in regard to what happened exactly on that first Easter Sunday morning. Something happened there that you have to account for if you're sitting here this morning as someone who has not signed up to be a follower of Jesus. Something happened to bring transformation to those first disciples who, remember, were in deep shock and deep grief because Jesus had been crucified. Something happened to turn their lives around. And I want to suggest this morning that it was the appearance of the risen Jesus himself. That would do it. I believe it did it. But again, I'm not here this morning to try to prove resurrection to you. But what I want you to understand this morning, if you're here in this sort of observing state, is that the belief in the actual, physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb, that first Easter, is for Christians down the centuries the pivotal moment of history. By it, we Christians believe that Jesus is vindicated in all that He said and all that He did, and that He's actually confirmed in His identity as the Son of God, and that His call to all of us to follow Him becomes the most urgent summons that we will ever get. And I can assure you, if you're here as an observer this morning, that people like you, who down the centuries have wrestled with the meaning of their life, the meaning of Christian faith, the identity of Jesus, and the reality of the resurrection, people down the centuries who have worked through that path that you are currently on, and have reached the conclusion that Jesus really is who He said He was, and have bowed the knee to Him, and have yielded their life to Him, have discovered that He truly is alive. And so, I just want to put that out to you this morning. And if that is you, and if you're sitting here this morning, and if you're kind of humming and hawing and going, well, maybe, maybe, I just want to say to you, what's stopping you? What's stopping you? from yielding to Jesus and saying, yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, but I yield my life to you today. You could do that. And if you did, you'd be welcomed into the family of God down the centuries, into this community of belief that embraces the Apostles' Creed with all these implications. And your life would change, not just for now, but forever. So think about that, if you're here observing this morning.
And here the invitation, it is an invitation. Many of us here today are followers of Jesus. So what does this resurrection doctrine mean for us? Well, I think what it should mean is that when we encounter death, we should not be reduced to total despair. Death, for those who die in Christ, is an end to the suffering of the present world and a doorway to the presence of Christ Himself. While we mourn and grieve the passing of those we love, provided they are followers of Jesus, we believe that we will see them again. This has to be good news. I will see my friend Lynn again. We will see Ruth. We will see the many others from this congregation that have died over the years. It's a joyful and glorious prospect. And I hope that we can grab it and hold it and hang on to it as our essential hope, no matter what happens. A last thing for us this morning out of this teaching on the resurrection of the body that should encourage us is that life down here, while precious, is not the ultimate reality. Jesus taught His disciples that His invitation for them to follow Him was a call to self-denial and the embrace of suffering as indicated by taking up the cross daily. And He clearly told His followers that the attempt to hang on to our lives is guaranteed to end in failure while those who lose their lives for Him and for the sake of the gospel will save them. In a context of fear like we are living in these days, we need to be reminded that Christians in previous ages have modeled for us the kind of devotion that Jesus is talking about here. And they have demonstrated the love of Christ in extraordinary ways. Think of the Christians who in times of plague in the Roman Empire refused to leave their neighbors, although it was almost a guarantee of their own death because they cared for them, they felt it was their Christian duty to love them no matter what and to bury them properly. That's Christian devotion. It's holding our lives lightly and it's demonstrating that hanging on to life is not the most important thing. Or think about those pioneer missionaries in the 19th century who headed off to places like Sierra Leone in West Africa. They knew that their lives there would be really short. For many of them, it was as short as six weeks. That's what it took after they arrived in West Africa as they were exposed to the fevers and the plagues of that part of Africa before they succumbed 
And here's the deal. They knew that and they went anyway. Think about that. What God had done in their hearts was give them a conviction that the gospel, that sharing the good news of Jesus, that caring for others was the real priority. It wasn't hanging on to the life that they had been given. It was, in a sense, recklessly throwing it away for the glory of Jesus because they were convinced that life wasn't everything and that real life, eternal life, was. The end of Revelation, or in the middle of Revelation, we read this that describes the victorious people of God down the ages who triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Well, there's a great company around the throne of God's people who, because they knew the resurrected Jesus, stood tall, didn't recant, took it on the chin, and lived their lives with such passion and fervor and commitment that Jesus was glorified in their dying. And they too, we will meet again. This is sober stuff. But it's a big call this morning in a climate of fear to fix our eyes on the resurrected one, to be reminded that He and He alone has overcome death, that death is a defeated enemy, and that we believe together in the resurrection of the dead. Amen? May it be. David, come and lead us in worship to the resurrected one. you to stand if you would like. We're going to respond in worship. And there's this thing about the resurrection and life in Jesus that there is um, a, a physical, 